conversation. Today, we're joined by Dale Gallipo of the Law Offices of Dale Gallipo. Dale practices in the area of civil rights litigation. He went to the University of Michigan undergraduate, UCLA Law School. He's been out practicing for more than 20 years. He's obtained some landmark uh, verdicts in the area of civil rights, primarily in the federal court and dealing with police misconduct and police abuse. So, Dale, great to have you. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. I'm glad to be here, Brian. Thank you for having me. Well, we're lucky to have you here, Dale. I, I think Dale is one of the leading trial lawyers in the country in the area of police misconduct, civil rights. I'm always amazed by your results, Dale. So I want to get right into it. How did, how did you decide to be a lawyer? Well, my dad was a lawyer, and I think although they never pushed me to be a lawyer, when I was young, I had the impression that lawyers uh, are educated, can help people, get to wear nice clothes, could be financially successful, and they're smart. So I thought that might be a good thing to be. Once you, once you were in Michigan going to school, I bet it was probably a little cold. What was it that drove you out here to California? Well, to say it was a little cold is an understatement. It was freezing, and I was supporting those Wolverines the best I could. But I applied to a lot of law schools, but when I got into UCLA, the thought of going uh, to school in California for a kid that grew up in, outside of Cleveland, Ohio, was incredible. I had never been west of Chicago at that time, and 22 years old, it was a big adventure for me. So I drove across the country in a uh, Malibu Classic with a U-Haul attached, and I've been here ever since. Well, we're lucky to have you here in California, Dale, but how is it that once you became practicing, you became interested in civil rights litigation? Well... Uh, you know, my practice initially was in uh, personal injury law, and then I started doing criminal defense law to help support my personal injury practice. And that's where I think I really developed my skills, my trial skills, doing criminal defense work, cross-examination skills. Uh, I got used to having really difficult facts because oftentimes in a criminal case, you have very difficult facts. You have a client with a criminal record, sometimes in a gang, Drugs are involved. Sometimes there's statements and confessions. So you really have to learn how to be a, a great cross-examiner to survive in criminal defense. And I also would argue personal injury cases for money damages. When I saw the Rodney King case, that really got me going because I just felt it was so over the top. And then I kept seeing examples of uh, police abuse. In the criminal cases I worked on, uh, I saw so many times an officers would file or write false police reports, testify falsely. And I just thought, I just can't believe there's no accountability. I was wondering, what's going on? Are there civil cases? And that's where I really started getting interested in civil rights. I wanted an opportunity to practice in that area. Early on, I heard that the police won 90, 95% of the cases. And that really bothered me. I felt we needed really good lawyering in that area to kind of uh, balance the, the scales of justice. So you, you're handling criminal cases, you're handling PI cases. I assume that the money from the criminal cases wasn't as good as the PI cases. Well, that's an understatement. In fact, my first big case in 1992 uh, was involving a girl who was hit by a vehicle and rendered uh, permanently blind. But the 
person only had $15,000 insurance, so I came up with this dangerous condition on public property theory against the city of Burbank. But when I found out how much it was going to be to uh, retain experts, I didn't have that kind of money. So I started uh, doing criminal defense law to raise the money for the blind girl. And then I eventually won that jury verdict of $6.3 million, which was early in my career, was my first seven-figure verdict. But yes, uh, to say that the uh, civil cases paid better than the criminals is an understatement. So eventually, how was it that you transitioned into 1983 practice, which, as far as I understand, is primarily in the federal court? Right. Well, you know, initially I started taking a few cases here and there. I knew that I liked it. In 2002, uh, a secretary of mine knew a family where uh, a guy had been beaten up and killed by, by the Fontana Police Department. Then I learned that three people in five months had been beat up and killed by the same department. I ended up with all three cases. On one of the cases, I met my wife, um, who's now my wife. And so getting those three cases and then building from that, I started getting more and more civil rights cases. At one point, it was half my practice, and then it became my entire practice. And uh, with respect to federal court, I remember in the early 90s going to federal court and thinking, wow, this is like so formal and so different. And something inside me thought, I wonder if I'll ever practice in federal court. And so it's kind of ironic that now 90% of my cases uh, are in federal court. And it's very scary at first for lawyers that practice in state court because there's different rules and procedures. But once you get used to it, uh, for me, I'm almost more comfortable in federal court now than state court. So once you talk about some of the differences, I, I note that unanimous jury, maybe minimal vordner, maybe not. Uh, bifurcation on a lot of issues, expedited trials. What are the, what are the challenges you face in federal court with these cases? Well, Forget the facts of the case. Let's just talk procedurally here. Right. Well, the first two that you hit on are, are really big because I think, you know, a lot of civil attorneys um, don't like the idea that you need a unanimous verdict because a lot of their verdicts, although some are unanimous, a lot of them may be 9-3 or 10-2. So that's, that's one issue, although I don't think it's as bad as most people think, because I think you normally have eight jurors. And I think if your first vote is 5-3 or 6-2 your favor, there's a good chance, depending on the dynamics of the jury, you're going to get a unanimous verdict. Same with criminal cases. You know, they often get unanimous verdicts where the first vote may be 6-6 or 8-4. Uh, the lack of voir dire, I think, is really big because I think the opportunity to do voir dire in state court cases, many people feel that could be the most important part of the case, talking to your jury, picking your jury. And it's so limited in federal cases, sometimes we only get 15 minutes to voir dire the panel. Um, and you know, sometimes I jokingly tell the judge, you think that's enough time? You know, 15 minutes, I'm, just, I'm dividing the number of people by 15 minutes. Let's see, that's about 30 seconds a person. That should be more than enough. So it's almost laughable. And other judges give you no uh, voir dire at all. You're allowed to submit proposed voir dire. So those are two big things. Discovery is a little bit different. 
Um, you are well, let me stop you there. Let's go back to the voir dire. Yeah. Here you have a judge. Have you ever been able to talk a judge into giving you voir dire when he wasn't going to give it to you, he or she? Yes. Yes. In fact, it's funny. How do you go about doing that? <laughs> well, I think you could either do it orally or in a brief. It's interesting because I was on a panel once where George King was one of the uh, panel uh, members, and he was a federal judge who recently retired, and he gave no voir dire. And the panel was about how important voir dire was in jury selection. So after that, he changed his mind and said, okay, I don't think it's going to make a difference, but I'm going to allow some voir dire. I think generally speaking in federal courts, the federal judges are much more restricted. If they allow you voir dire, they're going to have certain uh, parameters and requirements you're going to have to abide by. But I think you have to convince the judge, depending on your case, people have strong feelings, for example, about the police or about uh, some of these issues. Some people very strongly support the police and don't want to vote against the police no matter what. Uh, other people feel that the police are completely out of control and there needs to be some accountability. So in my cases, it's so important because I always have some really negative facts to deal with. Could be drugs, could be criminal history, could be gangs, could be someone has a weapon, could be someone running from the police doing something stupid. And I want to get a chance to talk to the jury to figure out if they hear some negative stuff like that, is that going to be the end for them? Are they going to just tune out and they don't care if the guy was shot or not? Or are they going to be able to concentrate on the main issue, which is usually whether the use of deadly force was appropriate or not? So I think Wadir is critical, and I try to buy as much time as I can. So let's say you got 15 minutes. How do you use it's it? Really it's very tough. So you have to learn how to do everything in a short amount of time. For example, sometimes in federal court, the judge will say, okay, I'm going to set a time estimate for this case. Plaintiff, how long do you think you'll need to try your case? Plaintiff says two weeks. Defense, what do you think? Oh, I think that's about right. Two, two and a half weeks. Okay, I'm going to give you eight hours each to try your case. Eight hours? Judge, how can we do that? Eight hours? Is that just for the evidence? No. That includes opening statement and closing argument, but I'll tell you what, I'll do you a favor, it won't include voir dire. So then you're like, oh, you gotta be kidding me. So then you try to buy more time, and every judge is different, every jurisdiction's different, but 15 minutes for um, voir dire is difficult because you gotta figure out how you're gonna use the 15 minutes. And so I just start with some very general questions, I try to talk to the jurors for a few seconds each. If I have a few causes, I try to just ask two or three questions so I have enough to get them out for cause. And I try to personalize myself with everybody. I think it's very important to be able to read people well when you have limited idea. You just have to have gut instincts based on a person's background, their body language. Is this a person that might give me a fair shot or is this a person that's definitely going to go with the police no matter what evidence I put on. So you really need good instincts. So you got a trial. The judge is giving you eight hours. You have a guy had a, had a weapon, maybe a knife. Police are called out. Let's say it's a domestic disturbance. Police are there. The guy gets shoot. There's a shot. There's obviously a dispute as to whether he was a, a, a threat to them. How are you going to try that case with your eight hours? Well, 
first thing I'm going to do is figure out a factual dispute that I could potentially win. If the guy had a weapon, for example, let's say he had a gun in his waistband, I don't want to center the case around whether he had a weapon because I'm going to lose that. Uh, if if uh, there's an issue as to whether his hand went out of the officer's view for a moment, I don't want to limit myself to that. I want to say it was not a true immediate defense of life because the guy never pulled the weapon out of his waistband, because he never pointed it at the officer, because the officer never actually saw the gun in his hand. Uh, and there were less than uh, lethal alternatives, and the officer never gave him a warning. So you want to do two things. You want to, number one, explain to the jury what the officer did wrong, but equally important, you have to explain to the jury what the officer should have done. So normally, I put on the officer first, and I'm very efficient. I could, in 30 minutes, I could do now what I probably took me two or three hours to do as a younger lawyer. Uh, if the judge gives me more time, then obviously I'll take it. But I'll cross-examine the shooting officer first. If there were other officers at scene, I may cross-examine them to show inconsistencies. I'll then call recipient witnesses, if I have any, to show it didn't happen the way the officer described. I'll call the medical examiner, perhaps the paramedic, perhaps a detective, to show that it didn't happen the way the officer described. Obviously, if my, if the client, if the victim survived, I'll put him on or her. If not, the family members, I'll put on a police practice expert. I may put on another expert or two if there's an issue with respect to the forensic or medical evidence. And that's my case. And of course, I'll cross-examine their people and, and get ready for the best closing argument I can give. So that sounded like a lot of stuff to do in eight hours. How, how long would you spend, for example, with the police practices expert? Okay. So first of all, uh, the eight hours was kind of an extreme example, but I'll use that example because some, some judges will give you 12, 10. Some judges will say, you know, just be efficient. But let's go with the eight hours just for an example. The way I would break it down, I would probably spend an hour on the shooting officer or shooting officers. I would take them, I would spend the most time with them because I feel I have to discredit them. I have to win that battle of cross-examination, otherwise I'm gonna lose the case. If they come off as very presentable, very honest, and their story is completely believable and the jury buys it, I'm probably going to lose the case because most often they'll come up with a story if believed would get them off the hook. So I would take uh, an hour or two with the involved officers. The rest of the people I would be very efficient with. Uh, paramedic, 10 minutes. Medical examiner, 20 to 30 minutes. Police practice expert, 30 minutes. 40 max. Are you uh, spending any time with the uh, qualifications of these witnesses? Very little. Basically, Very little. you're a medical examiner. You went to medical school. You do medical autopsies. How long have you been doing it? X years. How many have you done? 5,000. What's your opinion? Basically, you know, you cut right to the chase. And I'm going to tell you something. I know that at first it's so uncomfortable to have these time limitations. But it forces you to get right to the issues. And honestly, I think the juries appreciate it. You know, you got to realize we live in a time where juries watch a television show 
and the, the, the incident to the jury verdict all takes place within an hour. Uh, the investigation, the entire trial, everything. And lawyers love hearing themselves talk, and the case goes on and on and on and on. I know, Brian, you've been involved in some incredibly in long cases, but I realize there's a reason that they're that long, the number of witnesses, the number of experts on both sides. But it forces you to cut right to the chase. So I'll get the medical examiner on, and if I'm thinking there's 10 main points that I'm going to make with this medical examiner, I cut right to it. Where do you currently work? What do you do? How many autopsies have you performed? Did you perform the autopsy in this case? Let's talk about it. Have a copy of your report handy, and I can just jump right into it. Um, and it's very unlikely the other side's gonna be stupid to object to the medical examiner having a, a foundation to be an expert or your police practice expert. And if they do, it's, it's, it's very quickly mod, uh, remedied. I find it very interesting how many uh, Defense attorneys on the other side don't object when you get right into opinions with experts. So let me ask you this. When you're trying these cases, is most are most of the cases bifurcated on the public entity's liability? In other words, the Monell claims. Could you explain that? Sure. So under state law, there's vicarious liability for the entity. And usually some of the state claims that I have include battery, negligence, violation of the Bain Act, which is Civil Code Section 52.1. So if the involved officers used unreasonable force under battery or were negligent or violated the Bain Act, you have automatic vicarious liability. Federal claims include stuff like the Fourth Amendment, which covers unreasonable detention, false arrest, and excessive force. For example, there's also the 14th Amendment, but importantly, under federal law, there is not vicarious liability. There is not respondeat superior. So the only way you can get the entity involved under federal law is through a Monell claim, which basically there's different aspects of Monell. It could be an unconstitutional custom and practice. It could be totally inadequate training. It could be ratification. And normally it is bifurcated out, although some judges will listen to an argument that it should not be bifurcated. For example, if part of your claim is they have totally inadequate training with respect to the use of the chokehold, and the chokehold is what killed the person in the case, the judge may let that aspect of Monell in in the case in chief. Ultimately, it doesn't matter because in my cases under the government code, if the jury finds the officer used unreasonable force, the, the city or county is in under state law. I'm usually asking for millions of dollars. I don't think the jury thinks that these officers are paying it out of their own pocket. Uh, I get an instruction under state law that the entity is vicariously liable. So it's very rare that a case even goes to the Monell phase. If you lose the first phase, you won't get there. If you win the first phase and get a big verdict, you don't need to go there. So uh, it really doesn't matter that the main thing is to have your federal and state claims in and get findings against the involved officers and have the jury believe that any finding against the officer is going to be paid by the city or county anyways. All right. So let's talk about damages. I would expect that sometimes the clients that you represent, whether it be the person that shot or their family, there may be some issues. 
talk about that. Oh, there are, and it's it's really tricky. If the case is not, <laughs> bless you, Brian. If the case uh, is not bifurcated, sometimes the cases are bifurcated on liability and damages. And I'll give you an example. If it's a death case, everyone knows it's serious. Everyone knows someone died. If my clients don't present that well, or if there's a lot of evidence that the judge says. I think it's relevant to damages but not liability, then I would ask for a bifurcation so the jury can decide whether the officers used excessive force without hearing all this negative evidence. And then if I win the first phase, I either try to settle the case, or by that point, the jury is pretty much on my side. The other problem is, if you have a difficult liability case asking for too much in damages, you're afraid you're going to turn off the jury because the jury showed all this negative evidence and then you're gonna turn to them and say, and by the way, we're asking for $20 million. It's, it's a difficult sell. And I would say it's gotta go case by case. And I'm getting a little better over the years, Brian, following footsteps like yours and many others of, of how to artfully argue damages and argue for higher amounts. And I think what's surprising is juries are not as offended as some people think they'll be by asking for a high amount of damage. They almost want to feel they're a part of an important case that has a lot of damages. But you really have to be careful on that. And one of the most difficult parts of civil rights cases is handling your negative evidence on both liability and damages. I have a rule. First, try to exclude it if you can. That's number one. Then try to limit it. And finally, Figure out how you're going to deal with it in jury selection, in opening, throughout the evidence, and in closing argument. Let's ask about this scenario. You represent a, a child, let's say a young child, whose father was killed, and he didn't have a great relationship. I'm sure there are many of those cases that you have. He wasn't married to the, to the mother. He didn't live with them. But here's a child that will never have a father. How, how do you deal with that? Right. That comes up a lot in my cases. And there's two components. First of all, you have to argue uh, the value of human life. And I, and I have a little uh, things I say about that. You know, what is more valuable than human life, than a father? It's not what we think. It's what this child thinks. It's what this child will lose for the rest of their life. Would anyone give 5 or $10 million dollars? you know, in, in exchange for a parent or a child, depending on what it is. So I think you have to, again, argue it very artfully because the other side has to be careful too. You're going to get the last word in rebuttal argument. If they say, well, gosh, you know, this child's better off now that his father's dead. He, was, he wasn't a great guy and it's really not a big deal. That could also backfire on them because you have the last word. So again, you really have to have a good feel for your jury. And I think jurors, a lot of times, um, liability and damages are really intertwined in their mind. And if the conduct is bad and there's credibility issues on the defense, and I'm sure you probably would agree with this, Brian, I think that helps you argue bigger damages because they get impassioned. So Whatever you asked for, I find you're probably not going to get, although sometimes you get lucky and get what you asked for. So I normally ask high and then see what they come up with. 
But something else that's very important, Brian, that's been a change in the law in federal cases since 2014. Under state law, as you know, you can't get pre-death pain and suffering. But under federal law, the question was unresolved. In a shooting case where someone dies, if you can get pre-death pain and suffering, and in a case called Chowdhury versus the City of Los Angeles, the Ninth Circuit, they held, yes, you can. You can under federal law. So if there's a finding under the Fourth Amendment that an officer used excessive force, the uh, successors and in interest could get pre-death pain and suffering. Now, of course, the thought was, well, how much could that be? Because you're shooting someone and they could die in a rel uh, relatively short period of time. But then other cases have broadened it to say it's not only pre-death pain and suffering, it is loss of life and loss of enjoyment of life. And there's jury instructions on this. In my last three cases in California, maybe four, I think I set the highest uh, or, or close to the highest standard for survival damages. Up to that time, I think there had been a million or a million and a half when the death occurs within minutes. And in one case, I got $2 million, another case, $2.5 million, and my last case, $7 million, just in survival damages, separate from the wrongful death damages. Because what I argued, not only was this person shot and killed, but this person lost their life. They lost their life, which is an argument we could make, you know, in, in many cases. And what is the value of that loss of life? And then separately, let's look at the wrongful death damages to the children and the parents, etc. So survival damages has really been a, a game changer, I think, in, in the, for the federal cases.